Michelle, I wasn't expecting to cry so much in this conversation. (laughs) Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is Paralympic snowboarder Michelle Salt. Her right leg was amputated above the knee following a near-fatal motorcycle crash in 2011. Michelle represented Canada at the Paralympic Games in Sochi in 2014 and Pyeongchang in 2018. Prior to her accident, Michelle competed as a fitness model in the MPAA, and three years after her accident, she returned to the fitness stage. More recently, she has been an advocate for adaptive wake surfing. Michelle is raw and honest throughout this conversation. She talks about the highs and lows of participating in competitive sport, her desire to belong, and her experience with depression, suicidal ideation, and discovering the healthiest version of herself. We hope you are as inspired by her courage, honesty, and resilience as we were. Hello. Hi. Hi, Michelle. How are you? So glad that we made this happen. Well, Michelle, we've been really excited to speak with you. We have many points of interaction in the past. Julie and I were talking about kind of the origin stories of how we first met you. And I met you through cycling first and the paracycling movement. And then my time through the Canadian Paralympic team scout the scouting process that they had you were volunteering and i went through that as an athlete and that's when i met you that's when julie was able to meet you and then through mindset go you did two seasons when we were the hosts of that you continue to be this theme of resilience and an athlete in our life that keeps moving and trying new things and so we're really excited to speak with you today to hear about the mindset the struggles that have happened continue to happen and how you get through these difficult days So I think what would be neat for us and for our listeners is to hear the story of little Michelle Salt and the beginnings to where we are now. There's a lot that has went on in the past 36 years, (laughs) Uh, but bringing it way back to the beginning, I grew up on a game farm. So I've always been, you know, a farm kid, a tomboy playing with my brothers and sports for me was how I... I fit in, you know, I was an awkward kid in school and I never really excelled at school, but you put me in sports and I was like a totally different kid. And so I identified, I think as an athlete from a young age and then basketball, snowboarding, I got on a snowboard at 13 and I loved it. And so when everything kind of came about my life and my accident, it just made sense for me to pursue something that I was once good at but I had to relearn to do all over again yeah man do you have a pet there I know is she loud oh no I just heard like little pitter patters so <laughs> is it a dog or a cat it's a dog oh, okay she, yeah she want to say hi yeah you want to come up <laughs> for a second? oh hello what's her name this is Lenny oh hi, so hi Lenny hi, Lenny is an emotional support dog Aww. as you can see so yeah. cute. <laughs> Mommy so needs very, me. very loving. Um, I've been extremely dizzy today, so she knows something's up. Oh. She like won't leave my side. Aw, how long have you had her? Almost four years. Okay. Aw. Mm. She's so cute. The beauty of connection of animals. I know. Oh, they're so great. Yeah, Lowell yeah. and I were just discussing that the other day, how I've never been at a super low point, but a year ago from now, I was at probably one of the lower points in my life and we didn't have a dog because our previous dog had passed away and I swore I'd never get another one because it broke my heart, but then it turns out it left a hole in my heart that I needed to fill with a huge old St. Bernard. So now I have <laughs> my St. Bernard companion and new added mm-hmm. meaning with sharing stories with people like you and so 
I'm in a much better place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we can dive into that at, at some point, but after the games, she definitely saved my life more than once. Tian mm. Chang? Yeah. Okay. Yes. We will get into that. <laughs> so should we continue on with your accident then? Yeah. So um, June 27th, 2011, so 10 years ago now. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I was uh, going up the 1A hill in Cochrane and I lost control of my motorcycle going about 120 kilometers an hour. Um, My 500 pound motorcycle was pinned on top of me. I slid across a lane and a half, hit the guardrail head first, did cartwheels in the air and I hit the guardrail again. So upon impact, I had bilateral compounded fractures. I broke most of the bones in both my legs, pelvis, hips, L4, L5, right clavicle, punctural lung, bruised my spleen. And when I broke my right femur in two places, I actually severed my femoral artery. So I was bleeding out. Stars Air Ambulance landed on the hill when they're transporting me onto the stretcher, the third time I had lost my vitals, I had a full out-of-body experience. I was actually looking down at myself, like oh, knowing crazy. that it wasn't good. I remember thinking like, I'm too young to die. So I came to, gave them my mom's phone number. I held strong. And once I was being pushed through the hospital doors after 23 minutes of completely bleeding out, which was extremely rare when you sever that artery because it's like opening a garden hose, they say that's when my body started to shut down and I deteriorated quite quickly. And so lost 28 units of blood was on life support for seven days, went through a bunch of surgeries, including the amputation of my right leg quite high above the knee. And I was in the hospital for five months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? I was 26. Mm hmm. So kind of at that age where I was starting to figure out who I was and, you know, what I wanted in life. And I had a great job and I was in the best shape of my life because I just finished a month before finished my first fitness competition. And, you know, it, this just happened. And it was like the reset button was pressed. Mm-hmm. What's my life look like now? So at what stage were you told or how did you find out that you were going to be losing your leg? I don't remember. I was in an induced coma and so I was in and out. And I woke up day, well, the same day like the life support came out, day seven, I think it was, or day eight. And the bone doctor's, you know, telling me about his neighbor, how he's missing two legs and he drives and he goes to the university. And I'm looking at the doctor, I'm like, why are you telling me the story? I hadn't remembered going in for my amputation surgery. So they told me that I had lost my leg two inches above the knee. I'm about, depending on the day, because I have a lot of residual skin, but I'm about 10 inches above the knee, which is pretty significant when you have that much little femur left, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the same day or at least within 24 hours that someone had mentioned the Paralympics. And I was like, yep, that's it. I'm going to the Paralympics. Kind of gave you meaning instantly. Yeah. And for me, I knew that I needed a goal because I was going to have some pretty rough days ahead of me in the hospital for a long time. Mm -hmm. So finding our meaning, finding our purpose, finding something to get us through those really dark days when things seem to be crumbling around us. Somebody mentions this dream and it's enough for you to hold on to, to connect to that. And you did it, but it's not that simple, right? There's a lot (laughs) of recovery. There's a lot of work in those days and weeks after. Who are the people or what's the messaging? How did you get through? You know, I was talking to everyone I could about it. And 
you know, I was like, I'm going to be a, a Paralympian, I'm a one-legged fitness model. And so everybody's like, yeah, you're heavily medicated. Let's come back to this. And I wouldn't stop talking about it. So Greg Westlake came to see me in the hospital. He's the captain of the para-ice hockey team. And, you know, he's like, let's be realistic. Let's, you can do this, pick your sport. And snowboarding wasn't even in the Paralympics at the time. I got lucky. It was a late addition to the Sochi games, but he's like, go through the website, you know, like pick some sports you'd be interested in, try them all. But let's be realistic. It's probably going to take you at least a few years to make national team, right? Because you have standards. And I set my sights. I was still pretty like 2014 if they they put snowboarding in, but it was kind of always 2018. And then, yeah, from there, I called the the national coach for both cycling, Steven Burke, and Candice, the coach for snowboarding. I was like, Hey, like, I'm going to be on your team. I'm so excited. I can't wait to try these sports. And they're like, Oh, this is great. Like, when can you come out and train? I'm like, well, I haven't got my prosthetic yet. I'm still in the trauma ward at Foothills. Oh, like, uh, yeah. Why don't you call us in six months when you learn to walk? <laughs> Good first uh, step. <laughs> Unless you did something like sit volleyball or wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby, you wouldn't have to learn how to walk. Oh, but even then I was so broken. I had broke everything. I couldn't even sit up. I had all this lumbar fixation hardware. And anytime I touched the back of my wheelchair, I was in excruciating pain. So it, you know, I wasn't weight bearing for three months. So it, it took a long time to even get back to it and back on my board and to overcome the psychological component of losing a limb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So For those of us who haven't lost a limb, can you let us into that world? What is that psychological piece of losing a part of self? And then having to learn things over again that you had done all your life, like walking. Yeah. Well, and walking today is even still one of my biggest challenges because I'm, I, you know, I don't have much of that femur and I get exhausted quickly. Even when my endurance is up, I still struggle with that. For me, it's interesting because I think I, I pushed a lot of the grieving process off and I was so focused on sport that I came home after five months and yeah, I spent quite a bit of time on the couch because it was a lot of work getting up and making myself meals. So I ate pizza every day and watched a lot of episodes of prison break. But eventually I started going to the grocery store by myself and doing these things that I knew that eventually would get me back to an independent place in my life. It wasn't until about two years later that it hit me that I needed to grieve and I needed to be okay with every aspect. And as a female, how you look in a world that is a bit superficial is extremely hard. What, what does that look like? Right. And so I, I struggled with that and I still struggle with it 10 years later. It was tough. So it was just like two years after it was like, bam, everything hit me and my mental health struggled. Did you struggle with depression as a child? I did. Yeah. From the time I was 12, actually. Okay. So had you learned some coping mechanisms then or is mostly just sport but now that's been kind of limited because the loss of your legs so you're having to tap into some other resources 
I started seeing a counselor at nine years old and it was interesting because this is back in the nineties and it was almost like the counselors at school were a little too afraid to diagnose young kids with depression. So I, I never learned any techniques whatsoever. I didn't want to talk to the counselors at the rehabilitation center that I was in. And eventually I talked to an occupational therapist, but that was more just cognitive testing to see kind of where my baseline was because I had a head injury. I've only learned these techniques since retiring from sport in the last three years. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So it was a battle for a very long time. That's a tough battle. If you were to speak to that nine-year-old the 13-year-old version of Michelle, what would you want to tell her now? That was definitely a defining point in my life because that's when I started to notice that I was depressed and I felt like I didn't belong. And I grew up in a really small town where I had a mullet and my brother's hand-me-downs. And so I wasn't the coolest kid. And so if I could go back and have a conversation with myself, I would just tell myself that it doesn't matter what other people think. Just learn to love yourself, work on yourself, find what makes you happy. Because I was always doing what other people wanted me to do or what I thought was cool so I could fit in. And unfortunately, it shaped so much of my life until the last two years because I was so worried about people's opinions. That would be probably the most significant Mm -hmm. amount of advice, which is let it go, like be happy, find your thing. And mostly people are too busy worrying about themselves to actually worry about other people. Yeah. But this need as as a young girl to fit in, to belong, this need for belonging is one of our base human needs. We need safety, we need shelter, we need food to love and be loved. But belonging is a big part of that. And when we don't feel that, a lot of our personal growth, a lot of our personal movement is stopped. And that feeling, I'm not like the others, I'm not loved, I don't belong. And how do we find that belonging? And we start to fall into ways of behaviors and patterns and systems that aren't so healthy for us. And you struggle with that and, and finding your way and trying to find who Michelle Salt is. Yeah. And it was, I'll be honest, I didn't have that in the household either. You know, my parents weren't really around. My dad was always working and my mom was doing stuff. And so I had my little sister and, but that's really it. So it has taken me a long time to kind of understand the situation and be okay with it and find forgiveness too. Cause Not that it was up to my parents to give me that loving household, but I definitely lacked that. Even the last year has really shaped who I am and has allowed me to open up and create space for the right people in my life, which I was not doing before. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack right there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) That word is powerful and it comes with some baggage, but it comes with so much openness. What does the word forgiveness mean to you? That's a tough one. So you have each other and well, like you've done so many amazing things and you're in this journey together, right? Competing and, and trying to make the Paralympics, which I'm sure you will, but imagine not having that. And I went to two Paralympic games without anybody at the finish line. Mm. And that was so difficult. My family, no one in my family, I have five siblings and no one has ever seen me compete. No one has ever made the effort to see me compete, even at my world cups in Canada. 
So it really affected me, especially at the 2018 games when I was at the top and my whole thought process was no one's going to be there at the bottom. Michelle, I can't imagine you're legit making me cry (laughs) now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it took me a long time to forgive the choices of other people and to realize that that journey was my journey and my journey alone. And if they wanted to be there, that they could have been there, but I had to let it go. I had to say, I forgive you for not being there and to let them know, like it hurt me. It really, oh, and I want to say that it cost me a medal because that's not fair. There's a lot of different factors that day, but it definitely was a huge part of my train of thought going into that Stargate. Oh, I can totally see that. That's always the first thing Lowell always says is mm-hmm. how huge the support is to him. But also I'm a little confused mm. because didn't your brother write something in a journal while you were in the hospital that was pretty meaningful? Mm. My family was amazing in the hospital. They definitely played a role in creating the person I am today and that fire inside of me. Uh, my brother wrote, he could see me wearing this fancy running leg and winning medals for my country in para sport. So, and this was before I even knew that I had lost my leg. So they created this vision and I'm so thankful that they at least did that, right? Because it's because of them that they fueled this fire. And I get it. People get busy. People get really consumed in their own lives. And, you know, my my brother has three kids. And so I think it was a lot harder for them Mm -hmm. to be there. But I will forever be grateful Mm -hmm. that they instilled that in me and constantly said to me while Mm -hmm. I was on life support and I can communicate that I was going to do big things with my life. Yeah. Yeah. So they were part of the launching the dream, but you've had to go it alone in a lot of ways to keep the flame alive, to keep going and to work through that loneliness and to just be okay with the aloneness of some of these Mm -hmm. moments. But I feel your heart in that. Brene Brown talks a lot about this in Braving the Wilderness, this idea that sometimes we have to go out alone and we have to be able to brave that. And you've gone out with courage, but there was some pain involved in that. And so Mm -hmm. you came home from Pyeongchang quite crushed, it sounds like, and there was a big low. Mm, Yeah, let's let's dive into that because I think that it's really important for people to understand metal or not what happens after the Paralympics or the Olympics and such a high caliper event where four years goes into literally one or two or how many disciplines or races you have for us it was two races and obviously one discipline I was a lot better at than the other. So I went in ranked third overall in the world. I was Canada's most marketed winter Paralympian for those games. I had Sportcheck, Bell, Tempur-Pedic, Hilberg and Burke, like all of the biggest Paralympic Olympic campaigns and the only Paralympian for all of those campaigns. And so it was, it was great, but unfortunately with that came the pressure that if I don't perform that, why, why did these sponsors put all this effort into me if I can't perform in the moment? So I went in feeling extremely confident, hungry Mm. for a placement on that podium, and it just didn't work out. You know, I think psychologically there was a huge component there where I was talking myself out of it and having all of these doubts as a kid that I constantly had, like, I can't do this. Or maybe just shock that I had actually made it in the top four and I was in heats going for a medal. 
whatever the case was, it didn't work out. And in border cross, which was my stronger discipline, I finished fourth and in bank slalom, I finished fifth. And for me, you know, I'm all about just being like a, a good team player and sticking it out, but I couldn't. So I left two days after racing. I left before closing ceremonies. I came home and I went into the lowest place in my life. I knew that I was going to retire because I had too many head injuries and I was starting to really see my mental health struggling. So that happened. And then I don't know why my dad thought this was a great idea, but a month after the games, he told me he wasn't my biological father. So which was completely out of the blue, had no idea. So I went through the biggest identity crisis I had ever went through. Like I put eight years into sport, everything revolved around sport and eventually being on the Paralympic podium. That didn't happen. Now I'm not my father's daughter. I have to find my biological father. I'm not going to lie. I've been opening up about this because I'm finally in a good place, but like I was ready to go. I had made the video. I had mm. said my goodbyes. I was at peace with my decision. I felt like I had lived a good life, mm. but I couldn't live in the pain anymore. And so more than once it was like, this is happening. And mm-hmm. there must've been some kind of fire still in me because yeah. I'm here today, right? Still standing. Exactly. Yeah. And it was tough. And I didn't really have that sport either because when you're in a bad place, it's almost like people tend to shy yeah. away or back away from being in your life because they don't like that negative yeah. energy. The opposite of what you needed to come close, the belong, the that we're here with you. We're here with you, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't have that at all. People would have been asking me like, if anything could have change that situation or help you what would have been and it's just someone calling me and saying hey let's go for a bike ride or let's go snowboard or let's go do something to show you that there's so much life to live and let's distract you from feeling this way because at the time I didn't want to talk to anybody about it right like I was past Mm -hmm. the point of talking about it I just needed a friend someone to just be there and treat me like I was a human again because I definitely didn't feel like that feel that you were worthy of love that you belonged that you yeah. that somebody cared that would reach out and care about you specifically yeah and just do something fun like that's I just wanted to live life again and for me sports was everything and I wasn't doing it I wasn't getting out of bed I didn't work for seven months which didn't help you know anything financially it's expensive putting yourself through two Paralympic games and snowboarding didn't have funding. I never had carding. So it was a struggle, but it got better over time. The more I put into myself and finding a new career path, that is the most rewarding career I've ever had. It's my dream job. And that just came at the most perfect time where Mm. everything lined up the way it was supposed to. And now I'm in such a better place and a good place. So what is your job now? So I started working for motion in the Okanagan as a medical mobility sales rep. Appropriate. Yeah. So I'm part of the process. I work with occupational therapists and we help fit wheelchairs and any rehab equipment. And then I was offered a job to come out back to Calgary and work in pediatrics. I know. So working at the children's hospital and schools and getting kids walking again and standing up and in these tiny little 10 by 10 wheelchairs that are the cutest thing ever. It's my dream jobs. Aw. 
you have found a place to belong, a dream job, meaning, and purpose beyond sport. There's something about working with these pediatric patients in their time of need. So what has this taught, this job, what has this taught you about life and the world? For me, it was interesting. After my accident, I obviously was able to connect with a lot of people that were amputees and in wheelchairs. And before that, I hadn't really had any exposure to people with disabilities. So for me, it was pretty cool to be a part of this club that was so loving and supportive and understanding. And so to really, truly find, like, I think it's my calling, but also for it to be full circle. You know, Mm -hmm. I was once that person that went home with a wheelchair and a walker and bathroom safety equipment. And now I get to do that for, you know, it was long-term care in the Okanagan mainly, and now it's kids. And it is so rewarding, not just because of my part, but the part that they also play, like the role they play and the ability they they have to change me. Like kids are so resilient and incredible. Mm -hmm. And they just don't see any difference. You know, they learn to adapt so quickly and they're, ah, it's just such a beautiful thing. It really is. And And I'm sure seeing somebody like you is really good for them too, because they're like, oh, there's this like super cool, beautiful woman and she has the prosthetic and oh, she makes it cool. And then they learn that you're a Paralympian and that's so cool. So it's kind of a win-win for you guys. You become uniquely gifted. to do this job because of your life experience, because of the pain, because of your brokenness, it is now actually part of the beauty that gets to help heal others. And their parents probably love to see that too. Well, and often you get kids that are nonverbal and so you get to know them for their beautiful spirit, but you're dealing with the parents, right? Because they're so heavily involved and it's great seeing how involved those parents are and Mm -hmm. how much they love their kids and want the best. And Mm. there's nothing more rewarding than seeing the joy on a parent's face when they put their kid in a gate trainer or a walker for the very first time. And that kid is just running down (laughs) the hallway. They've never seen their child. And it's just, wow, like not a dry eye. I was going to say, you must keep the tissues handy around there. Oh man, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing to be a part of that. And it's interesting because I was told not long after I got hired that rarely they bring someone into this role without a degree in kinesiology. And so for me to land this job was a miracle in itself, but for me to be able to get in such a niche market is pretty incredible too. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely not taking it for granted. I'm doing yeah. the work. I'm putting the hours in learning what I can so that I can be good at what I do mm. and provide the best service for these kids. And your experience is equally, if not more valuable than a degree anyways, probably mm. more valuable. <laughs> yeah. Being led with your heart and you feel, so what's the difference now in chasing from before the earlier story is chasing belonging, living by other people's expectations, trying to modify your life to live for others. What has shifted? What is the change now that you're noticing? For me, it's, and I've noticed it a lot more lately that I am, it's not that I'm selfish, but I'm learning to put myself first and to be at peace with the decisions that I have made. I've become 
supportive of the people around me. Whereas before, I think, and this is unfortunate, but I, I truly believe that sometimes as athletes, especially individual sport athletes, we can become very self centered or self-absorbed, right? Because our whole world revolves around how we perform. And so everything we do goes into this performance or, you know, the multiple performances in world cups. So I had to get myself out of that. And after I retired, I talked a lot about sport and people would say to me, like, come on, like you're retired now. We think it's cool, but we don't want to hear about it all the time. Mm. And I even had one friend who didn't know me as an athlete say, we're all athletes. I'm like, well, (laughs) I did work really hard to be able to call myself an athlete, Mm -hmm. but I think now it's more or less I'm, I'm focusing on helping not even helping. I'm focusing on other people um, for the right reasons, right? Like I'm, I'm doing it with a content and full heart, knowing that I'm in a good place and I'm not seeking that approval. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just doing my thing. And if people don't like me, that's totally okay. But I would hope that now being a more positive person, there is going to be some kind of effect, whether it's good or bad, but it's coming from a much better place now. The authenticity of being you, of not having to modify or put on that mask. There's a struggle because when I think about you, I see this vibrant smile. I see this zest of life. And every time I met with you, it's this tenacity, this grit. When you fall down, you get back up. I mean, that's this is what I've seen in you as an athlete, but I didn't see. And I'm, I guess I'm blind, so I don't see a lot. Um, but I try to see with my heart and I didn't see behind that mask. Or maybe I was caught up in the, the inspiration that I saw in you, not to see that pain and that hurt underneath that loneliness. For me, sport was when people did see that part of me, right? Because it was so much of my life and who I was that it was when I went home at the end of the day that I struggled because I didn't know who I was or what my life looked like outside of being on the hill or in the gym. And even though I dove right back into sport after I retired in a non-competitive way, well, that's not true. I did compete in wake surfing as well, but the pandemic has taught me without being able to compete anymore that I can be who I want to be without having to constantly be competitive. And don't get me wrong. There's still that competition when it comes (laughs) to work and, you know, being good at what I do. But it's now in a less aggressive way. I was constantly told after I retired that I was too intense. So I've had to dial it back just for my own sanity too, right? Because I was a little intense. Constantly told? What kind of people are telling you you're too intense? That seems a little inappropriate. (laughs) I would be like, what rude? You're out of my life. (laughs) I'm like, like, Michelle, take up your space. Take up the space you need because it's beautiful. But I get it. Sometimes there's a modifying, right, for others in their comfort level, I suppose. But you do have vibrance. And I love that now you can see you have only so many cares to give and where are you going to give your cares? And if you can pour it into health and wellness and time with your dog and time with those patients and feeling good that instead of wasting energy on other people's expectations of you 
on competition. Yeah. And I think a lot of people didn't know me that these are the people after the fact, because when I came home, I had been gone for so long that I didn't really have friends anymore. You know, after seven years of competing, people kind of stopped calling me because they knew that I was always gone. So I had to make these new friends and they didn't understand where the intensity came from. I was like, you don't get it. You're up there. You're in the start gate. Like you're ready to go. And that anytime I got on a snowmobile, it was the exact same thing. I was like, oh, I have so much to learn and so much to take in. And everyone was just kind of on their own time where they're like, oh, like we're just going out for a leisurely stroll where we're going to have fun in the background. I was like, no, I got to be the best. It was was a challenge, but you know, I picked it up. So is it part of learning when to be present? When is it just about the experience and the fun in your life? Has that been part of the lesson? Absolutely. Like I said, I went right back into sport and I was just as intense about sledding, even though I wasn't doing it competitively and wake surfing, that I wasn't necessarily present. I was so focused on what I was going to learn. And then the pandemic hit and I couldn't compete anymore. And so I learned and like, you know, I also got a lot better at sledding too. And so I was like, oh, Like it is okay to chill and have lunch and take in the incredible views. Like the places the snowmobile Mm -hmm. takes you is unreal. And just to take it in and to love it and to enjoy being with good people. And just, you know, when it comes to surfing, just being on the water and being able to do something that a lot of people are like, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this. Well, I figured it out. So So when did you start that? So after the Paralympics, the last one, so Pyeongchang, I got on a friend's boat and we had to mount a wakeboard boot to my wake surfboard because my foot kept sliding off. But I got up right away and I could never get up on a wakeboard. It was the weirdest thing. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. And you can do tricks. It's like skateboarding, right? You can do like 360s and ollies. And Are you wearing a prosthetic for this or not? Yep. Okay, so it's waterproof? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my moto knee is fully waterproof. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I wonder if I can compete in this. So I looked into it and there was nothing in Canada. There was some competitions down in the state, but there was no rule book as to what factoring was going to look like. How do you separate someone who's sitting in a cage attached to a wake surfboard to someone with a single below the knee amputation? Like where's the fairness in sport? So of course, being as intense as I am, I was like, I'm going to write the rule book. I was just going to say, you wrote the rule book. <laughs> I did. I wrote the rule book. So I Somebody had to. <laughs> Why not you? Way too much time. But I... Did the public accept this rule book? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wow. a sanctioned sport now. Wow. So it was... Good for you. Yeah, it was accepted by the CWSA and the WWA. We had our first nationals two years ago, and we were the second largest category. We had points and a big prize purse, and it was awesome. Wow. So you're like right in there at the, (laughs) I was going to say ground level, water level. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. So you're not doing that right now because pandemic. Okay. How was it getting, we didn't even cover this. How was it getting on a snowboard for the first time or the first several times as an amputee after having found this passion and skill before and so much meaning in it. And then it's a little different now. Mm -hmm. How'd that go? 
and not good. It was so frustrating. I'm sure. Uh, I, I had this knee that had Fox mountain bike shocks in it. And I didn't really know how to like change PSI and things like that. And I didn't understand that it should be shorter. Like we figured it out over time, trial and error, but it was actually the season after Sochi that I actually learned how to properly carve and bend my knee because before it was always straight. Wow. Yeah. So sketchy. Wow. I struggle on a snowboard with two functioning legs. So I'm very impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I've only done it like twice. (laughs) Our kids love it now. They've only done it a couple of times as well, but they have requested that you teach them things. No pressure. (laughs) Well, and you have some success in this. I saw that you taught Rick Mercer how to snowboard. You did? Yeah. Well, the team did. The team, yeah. More more my coach. (laughs) I had just got back on snow after hitting a tree and blowing out my knee. But um, Which knee? The prosthetic knee or... No. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Well, I I had a partial tear. I didn't completely blow it out, but I was supposed to be locked out for however long it usually is like six weeks. And the next day they had me at 45 degrees and they pulled like 90 milliliters of blood out of my knee. Um, So, well, they had to get me to Sochi, which was two and a half months away. What a journey. (laughs) Journey. Yeah. But, you know, like now I work out with Sandra Ann from the Paris snowboard team and, you know, she's amazing. She's going to do big things. I know Mm. she will. No pressure, Sandra. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, her and I spin all the time, like at least two, three times a week. And then I do workouts at home. I've kind of, we've all learned to adapt throughout this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Not everybody has learned to adapt to home working out. What is your motivation? How do you keep motivated for working out at home? Got to get that energy out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that intensity, I got to burn it off somehow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I like the way I feel when I'm healthy. Right? Yeah. And so that's the biggest yeah. thing for me is like my mental health. I think that me working out four days, five days a week has contributed immensely to where I'm at now, which is not just mental health, but because of all my head injuries, doctors are still talking about me potentially having CTE. Mm. And even though you can't be diagnosed while you're alive, but I just checked all the boxes and my MRIs kept coming back fine. And so I take it day by day, but I find that when I'm healthier, I don't have as much brain fog, which is a huge thing for me. And like, I'm not as busy Mm -hmm. and Overall, I do a lot better. So can you unpack that a bit? CTE, to kind of describe, I mean, that's a big term and not everybody knows the acronym. And so if you can, can you unpack that a little bit and where you feel that that has come from and what that means for your life? Yeah. So I can't actually say the whole thing. It's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I hope I said that right. Uh, (laughs) It's a progressive and fatal brain disease they just don't know enough. And they've had a couple examples of like high profile athletes. Aaron Hernandez is one. There's a documentary on Netflix. Mm, Saw that one. Right. Like that's not the greatest story to connect CTE with, because I think it's terrifying for a lot of people, but Dave Mira was another one BMX racer who, you know, dropped his kids off and, and unfortunately went to a parking lot and committed suicide. 
And I think that a lot of athletes suffer in silence, especially those high impact sport athletes like football, hockey, boxers, you know, anybody who's constantly taking hits to the head, CTE will cause, you know, Aaron Hernandez, they cut into his brain and it caused perforation in the brain. So holes in the brain stage, you know, one is most people would say that's depression or anxiety. They'll just chalk it up to that. And then stage two is when you start seeing some of the motor functions and stage three is similar, but a little more intense. And then stage four is full-blown dementia. Not having this confirmation is obviously tough, but doctors are like, let's treat it like it's CTE. They think I'm in stage two, which means that I can stay healthy and not hit my head anymore. Did you hit your head a lot snowboarding, like when you were relearning and stuff? Yeah, well, you know, learning the body too. It all makes sense to me now because your coccyx, your tailbone, and your spine is directly linked to your brain. So as a snowboarder, you go down and you hit your tailbone hard enough, you've just rattled your brain because it is going up your spine to your brain. So it doesn't, like you can get concussions from hitting your tailbone hard enough. Michelle, that's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, but you know, like yeah, people I just it. have oh. to be aware of that, yeah. you know, um, wearing protection, they make shorts that have padding at the coccyx area, the tailbone, um, ITs, things like that. But, you know, if you think about me on snow, 150 days a year, and there were some times where I was going down three, four times. And at least one of those times I would hit my head, like I would fall back and I would hit my head or I would catch an edge. And especially when I was learning, it was consistent. Mm. I've had multiple high grade concussions since, which aren't great and Mm -hmm. definitely weren't treated properly. It all adds up. You know, there's no way that you can go through that much trauma to your body without it eventually affecting your brain. Cause it's Mm -hmm. most, Mm -hmm. they say it's one of the most sensitive muscles in your body. Right. And definitely the most complex. So how has your mindset been since being diagnosed with CTE versus when you had your leg amputated? Did you kind of access that same mindset or is it totally different? It's similar. When I hit the guardrail head first in my accident, I, and again, there was no brain bleeding. So everyone's like, oh, you're fine. Yeah, you hit a guardrail head first going 120, but you're fine because you had a helmet on. But I noticed right away, like I couldn't open one of my eyes. I was dizzy all the time. And I could not sit in front of a computer for longer than like three minutes. My focus, my concentration, it took years. And finally, after a year of advocating for myself, because, you know, scans showed Mm -hmm. I was fine. I sat down with an occupational therapist and she went through all this testing and she's like, your baseline for your short-term memory is not good. Like you have the memory of a goldfish, which is 30 seconds, but no, it's, it's definitely better than that. But that's usually what I, you know, I say I have a memory of a goldfish, but it was heavily impacted. And then I just threw myself right into sport and I had a lot of hard falls when I first started, I actually broke my tailbone. So I never allowed myself to heal. And they say that CTE usually becomes more obvious when you stop competing. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because you're not in that like concussed state all the time. Right. Yeah. It's been a challenge because I don't have that confirmed diagnosis. 
I'm just treating it again like it is and I'm staying healthy and I'm making sure to keep the noggin from not being in a situation where I can like hit it hard. Yeah. Keep the head up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good place to be. Do you have any interest in pursuing the NPAA, the fitness competitions? Do you have any interest in doing more of that? Um, I've been thinking about it lately. You know, I might. I've just, I've been working really hard and I'm like, you know, I would like to get back on stage. But when I got back on stage in 2014, three years after my accident, I did it for me. I did it because I wanted to prove to myself that I could get on stage covered in scars, missing a leg and still feel really content and proud of myself. Mm -hmm. And I did. But now that I've done that, it's just like the Sochi games. I went to become a Paralympian. And the 2018 games, I went to go win a medal. So if I'm going a second time, I want to do well. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't know if I want to go there. Put that pressure on yourself. Right? Like I've been through that and it was really tough on me. So I don't know. Maybe I can just be healthy and not care about what other people think. And and that seems to be the more resonating part of the authentic Michelle that it's not about what others think. You don't need to prove to anybody. It really is about this metric of health. Yeah. Do you get headaches? Yeah, like really bad right now, actually, and very dizzy. Oh, the screen's probably not awesome for you. Oh, it's not bad. But yeah, it's pretty consistent. Usually at night, and I've been taking medication that definitely does help with the focus. But it's, yeah, it's a battle. I never know. It's a battle. Wake up. Do you get phantom pains or any kind of? Oh, yeah. Oh, shoot. Darn it. I was hoping that maybe you had headaches instead of that. (laughs) No. Well, it's got better. And I, if there's any new amputees listening, the first year is 100% the most challenging when it comes to phantom pain, but it does go away because before it was consistent and now it kind of comes and goes. At night is when I find, you know, talking with other amputees, at night is usually when it's the worst because. You know, you have pressure when you put your liner over your residual limb and then you take the liner off and that pressure releases. And so that's usually when you feel it. Another reason why I like to work out is because mm. I tire myself out so yeah. I can just pass out. Just sleep. Smart. You have a connection with a famous Canadian. What does Terry Fox mean to you? His story is absolutely incredible. There was a bit of hope for my family with this connection and just even knowing who Terry Fox was. So my ex-husband, at this point, we were still legally married, but we had been separated for two years and my family was all in Edmonton and, you know, I, I crashed and went to the foothills. So he was in Calgary and he was one of the first people to the hospital and he was amazing. He was so great with my family. Mm. The day after my accident, when they found out that I was going to lose my leg, he had come home and he was taking everything out of his pockets. And there was a loony. And that loony just happened to have a picture of Terry Fox on it. Oh, wow. The next day he brought the loony to my family. And he's like, this is a sign that Michelle's life is going to be, you know, incredible. It's going to have meaning and she's going to do big things with it. Aww. Cool. Michelle, I wasn't expecting to cry so much in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's just, you talk about resilience and Terry Fox is it, you know? I can't even walk a block without being exhausted. And he ran like a marathon a day. 
And I think that maybe we're losing sight of what Terry Fox did with, you know, the younger generation, but like people, he was absolutely incredible. And he did it with this leg 40 years ago with a hinge knee and a wooden socket. Crazy. It was literally like a door hinge, his knee. So it is just, I don't know. We have technology these days. That's crazy. That inspiration of what he means and how incredibly inspiring it is. He's such a big hero now that sometimes we do miss out on. He was just like us struggling, but then the depth that he was able to find to do something so big. He's definitely an icon. I get a lot of parents that when they're willing to talk about it, they will bring up Terry Fox. And how big of an honor is that, right? Mm. To it's like, you know, Terry Fox is, well, this girl has a prosthetic leg like him too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. If you're going to be compared to anyone, that's a that's really cool. <laughs> okay, yeah. associated with anyone. Yeah. That's we'll a good one. <laughs> so we have this athlete edition word bird. I'd like to put some words towards you and just yeah. hear how you would respond to them. So just really short, almost like a rapid fire. What does yeah. this word mean to you? So here's the uh, word bird clip. Word bird. Okay. Partner, send down the word. Hup, hup. Ah! <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks buddy. Oh, see what the word is today. <laughs> Did that bring back any memories? Yeah. <laughs> Fred Penner would climb through the nice yeah. log and sing songs and yeah, yeah, Woodward would drop. So we saw him in Lethbridge a couple of years ago. It was quite nostalgic. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't bring the bird though. So the nostalgia. <laughs> I'd like to just yeah, ask you these questions and see what they mean to you. Okay. We had these down beforehand, but I almost adapt because man, you some of the stuff you said today is, I mean, my heart is touched, but um, let's see where this goes. Word number one, word bird. What does this word mean to you? Boundaries. Boundaries, not limiting myself to specific boundaries. So thinking outside of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Speed. Oh, that's like my middle name. <laughs> Adrenaline junkie. I do not relate. <laughs> I'm the only one in this household that does not relate. <laughs> Go fast. And this is from a young age. This is to find Michelle Salt. Next word, determination. I'm just setting your mind to it. Hard work, resilience, getting through it. Mm-hmm. Independence. Oh, that's been the last 10 years. Really resonates to when I first got home and going to the grocery store and learning to drive and like, independence. I wanted my independence back. So that's a big one to me is just Mm -hmm. every day, little steps of independence. Do you drive just a regular car just with the other foot? No, I have a left gas pedal. Oh, Mm, sketchy for other people getting in my vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of car do you drive? I just bought a brand new Chevy Colorado. Oh, it's like a smaller truck, like the size of a Tacoma. So I love it. Fits my snowmobile in the back. My snowmobile hangs like four feet off the back, but that's cool. (laughs) So can you just get any vehicle adapted like that? I have this really cool portable left gas pedal. It's like a 40 pound plate and I just put it on the floor and it's cool because there's a roller where the gas is. And so when I push on the left gas pedal, it pushes on the roller and activates the gas. And so the brake is still where it would be normally. And there's no way that it would roll away and be Like it definitely, when I push hard on the gas pedal, it, it will shift. But in my work vehicle, I have this cool electronic one where I press a button and it's like, the clutch, like it's, it's up high built into the vehicle. It's pretty cool. So how long did it take you to get used to that? 
I'm still getting used to it. Okay. So going on 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One of the interesting things you've had to do is learn to adapt. The equipment is a big part of the adaptation. So you have that in your vehicle. One of my most memorable moments was seeing you try to adapt your bicycle for track cycling. Oh, right? this, I can't imagine. The sense of getting on a track bike, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but yeah. This is a very unique piece, and this is where I first met you and saw your tenacity, but this is how how do we help a cyclist stay on a bike that you have to get going from a standstill and get enough speed to get around a corner without falling off because you slide off the track if you're not fast enough. Like so it's can hard you, enough with all your body parts Yeah, can you just, that's so. a hard thing for an able-bodied, <laughs> and here's Michelle Salt trying to figure out the connection, the binding. Kind of, did you feel comfortable describing that to yeah, us? Yeah, Do you remember me though going down in the corner absolutely the- yeah <laughs> yeah on the white track it did I still have a scar from that like it did not feel good so just let me be clear before I dive in like yeah you definitely need enough speed in the corners um and I wasn't always successful in order to put me into a category with other above the knee amputees I have to cycle with one leg so I started with just an old socket, like check socket, and we cut out a part of it. And then I would just put my residual limb in there and I would always stay seated, figuring it out. But when it came to track cycling, that's not ideal because you need to stand in order to get that momentum going, right? Like it is so hard to get that sitting. So Steven came up with this incredible design where it's a pedal put your shoe in and you put the cleat at the bottom of a socket that's attached to my leg. And so it clips in. You don't have to see it, but it's pretty cool. So what it does, it allows me to stand up and to put all my weight into my prosthetic side because it moves, right? Like it articulates like a pedal. So I'm not limited to just constantly being stuck in this socket. I am now able to stand up. And that's mounted to your seat post, right? Like this is it was up, mounted to my seat yeah, post. Yeah. Up high, just like you're clipped yep. in. It's just, yeah. Maybe we'll have to yeah. post it. Do you have a picture of that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll post a picture, uh-huh. some pictures in our Instagram. If you can, if anybody's listening to this, we'll, yeah. we'll post it. It's just a really unique. And so you're getting, you're in the start gate and you have to stand up and get enough momentum with one leg <laughs> to get a bike with one gear up to speed to get around a corner within a couple hundred feet or and if you don't have enough speed you you literally slide off the track and fall over and that happened to you yeah (laughs) been there done that (laughs) yeah but you know like at that point my leg was so in shape because I would challenge myself like I don't know if you've done the highwood pass but I did the highwood pass and at the peak and I was like passing people with one leg and I was like what is happening and there's a lot of pretty aggressive hills on that climb I think it's the highest peak in uh, Canada, the Highwood Pass. Yeah. And Highwood Pass obviously was closed to cars up until a certain date. And so I was just like, yeah, let's do it. And I was actually doing it. I did it with Kara and Cass. Oh, awesome. And Kara was like crushing. She was coming down these hills and she was flying by me. And I'm like, wow, this oh. is and just so you guys know, Kara is a hand cyclist. And she's so is strong. Absolutely incredible. We crossed, you know, up to the peak at the same time. So and then Kaz was on a trike, right? Yeah. That's so awesome. The three of you together in this in these different bikes. That must have looked so cool. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting day, a fun day for sure. I learned to adapt and I'm like, well, 
I only have the one leg and it took me a long time to figure out because your other leg pushes when your leg that isn't working at the time is at the lowest, right? So it's a constant circle of push and pull and push and pull. Ride the square, ride the square. Exactly. But when you take away that second leg pushing, then there's a dead spot. And so it took me a really long time to get over that dead spot. Like I would do five pushes and then my leg would just make it over. And then eventually it was coming back on me. So it took a long time to train the leg and the brain to keep on consistently pushing. Mm -hmm. Part of your story, having to learn how to keep continually pushing through your life, through the next challenge. Yeah. You have been an inspiration to me. You have this tenacity, this zest for life. And I know it's been challenging. And thank you today for your vulnerability, for sharing with us that it has been dark. It has been hard. And I'm wondering for those, we alluded to it, that difficulty in post games, what would you tell the athlete? And then what would you tell the athlete supporters for people coming back from a games, from, from people after the big high, the mountain or the big disappointment? To the athlete to just focus on the journey. We get so stuck in the moment that we don't celebrate all the little victories that go into creating the person that we become once we get to the games. You know, it was really hard for me to look back and see the four years and how that shaped me. And so I think if you celebrate all those little victories that going into the games, no matter what happens, you're so proud of yourself and you can walk away potentially not on the podium, happy and content with your results because of those successes. And successes don't even have to mean medals, right? It's just getting there. Being the best in the world to get to the Paralympics is a wonderful accomplishment in itself. And that's not everybody's goal, right? So whatever your goal is, just be so proud of all of the little mini goals in there that you've achieved. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for the supporters, it's just showing up. It really is just show up, be proud. If my family were there with me after the games or after, you know, I competed and I, I didn't podium, I think it would have went a long way and tell them that you're proud no matter the results. Just a quick side question about your siblings. Are they all your half siblings then or are any of them full siblings? Well, I thought they were all half except for my youngest sister, but now my brothers technically aren't blood. At all? Well, no, because we have a different dad. Oh. But really quickly, elevator conversation, 15 seconds. I found my biological father. He was in Kelowna. I just moved to Vernon. He's amazing. He's 82 years old and he is oh. incredible. And you can't tell he's super healthy. And then I also found a half brother who I thought probably was in his fifties based on my biological father's age. And he's a year older than me. Oh, and cool. this is where it gets crazy because both of our moms are French Canadian and they both named us the same thing. So my brother's name is Michelle. What? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So now you have new family. Yep. And he thought he was an only child for 36 years. So we are like twins. It is the weirdest thing. We are so much alike. I always felt like I didn't belong in my family. And now I have this brother who now has a sister for the first time in his life. And he is married to an only child as well. 
but now she has a sister-in-law and my niece has an aunt so her favorite aunt yeah Yeah. obviously yeah yeah (laughs) did your dad know about you before your biological father no he didn't so wow yeah I'm surprised I didn't give him a heart attack yeah (laughs) Good, good thing he's a healthy 80 whatever yes, year old yes very very healthy <laughs> that must yeah. have been a bit of a surprise oh wow i can't believe that your brother has the same name as you even and you know the craziest thing and this isn't to make anybody feel sad in any way but 100 percent, they would have been there when you were looking for your biological father to reach out what was going through your mind like what were your emotions like because you were searching for that but were you at all scared of rejection or what if this doesn't work out and how much did that play into it oh yeah like rejection has always been a big thing for me right because I just wanted to fit in so I was terrified and he ended up being the kindest person wow well so now you have to get in some in a post-covid world some more international wakeboarding competitions so that your new family can for sure be there. <laughs> well, I've been looking at summer again. I am up there in age, so but I, I was looking into athletics recently and mm. I don't know. We'll see. I, I think I just need to chill for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Just chill and enjoy the kids, enjoy this beautiful meaning and purpose and this yeah. newfound zest of being okay with you, yeah. accepting self finding that belonging and finding your health. And I think it's time for a new Ted talk. Like, I mean, your story has taken a different route Mm -hmm. and we need an update. (laughs) And it's crazy because I stopped speaking and I really haven't spoke much. And I was, I was doing 20 speaking engagements a year and I just completely shut that off because I felt like I didn't have a bang ending, right? Like I needed that crazy big ending and so I recently did another podcast with Carrie Dahl, who was with CTV. And um, she's like, you need to share the story because people can't always relate to the gold medal, yeah. but they can relate to feeling like you failed and climbing yourself out of this, this dark place. So I think you're onto something. I yeah. think I'm going to put it on, you know, paper, write a book and, sure. and start speaking again. The true hero story is actually finding that path from who we were before the trial, the tribulation, the pain, how we got up, how we got through. And that is a story that resonates. That's what every good Marvel movie and every good great hero story will have is that moment of, of rising up again. And I see that in you. So definitely write your story, share your story. I hope that people will reach out to you and book you to speak and that you will take them up on that Mm -hmm. because we don't need a bang ending. You'd get to be, this is my story and this is what I've learned along the way and it's enough. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad this worked out, Michelle. Thank you so much for connecting with us. Is there anything that you're really passionate about that you, at this time, that you want people to be aware of or a cause or something that we could promote or speak to? So I've been doing quite a bit with the Alberta Children's Hospital, and it's really important that people at least look into, if they were to donate, where that goes. And it goes to definitely a really good cause, but I've been doing quite a bit with Special Olympics lately, and I just love it. I, I truly do. I think that you meet the athletes through the Special Olympics, and they are incredible. They're so happy, and it's just... Oh, it, it just wears off on everyone Contagious. around them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is an incredible organization to be a part of and if you can volunteer your time. I'm sure they're always looking once they start doing events again, they're always looking for volunteers. Awesome. That's a great cause. Well, thank you for sharing this time with us. Thank you for your smile. Thank you for your vulnerability, your realness, telling us some of those dark moments, but also sharing your mindset of how you got through this. We wish you the best of luck until thank we meet you. again. We'll hopefully wakeboard or do something together at one point. That'd be cool. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. You're both so amazing. And this was a great experience. Ah, well, it was wonderful to see you again. Yeah, lots of love. Go tend to that cute puppy and, and take care of your body. Bye, Lenny. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye, bye Michelle. Bye-bye. Michelle Salt. Now that was quite the conversation. Uh, how many times did you tear up, Lowell? I lost count. Yeah. There was so much real raw emotion. Yeah that her pain is still fresh in some ways. Now she's definitely recovering, but since a child, since nine years old, these struggles with fear of rejection and trying to find a sense of belonging and struggling with depression and struggling with how to cope with that through her life. And then turning 26 and in this life that's ahead of her, crashing, losing a leg, and then having to restart so many things again. Now, after the concussions, after the disappointments of not making her dreams in the Paralympics of meddling, struggling with having the multiple head traumas and then the difficulties of overcoming that, she's had to find this new sense of self, this idea of how do I overcome what's important, finding new meaning and new purpose in her life. It's so amazing to see her light up when she talks about these kids that she can help and working in the Special Olympics, working in helping these kids and these individuals come back and have the right equipment and adaptations and learning to walk again. And she just lit up. New job, new family, new sport. A new chapter for mm. her book is starting. Yeah, she could probably write like a 57-chapter book at least, hey? Mm-hmm. The time that you met her was in Calgary at the Canada Sport Institute. She was mm. volunteering to help at the Canadian Paralympic Athlete Search. That's where I got scouted in for cycling and we kind of got into the national team. I was also scouted for paranordic cross-country skiing at that time. But uh, what, what happened there, Lowell? <laughs> big yeah. engine, no, no skill. <laughs> um, but that event she was volunteering at and, and helping. I've just come across her and her tenacity and her big smile and her energy. There's a reason why she was in two episodes of Mindset Go. Mm-hmm. So She's inspiring. It, very inspiring. And it might set go to have somebody who's going through a challenge to meet a Paralympian or a Paralympic hopeful. And in this case, Michelle was able to work with two of those individuals and come alongside them on their health and wellness journeys. And she's somebody who has so much to offer. And you can see it, you can hear it in her voice that she's going to prioritize relationships, she's going to prioritize health and making sure that she's there for other people. Pretty cool lady. Very cool. Some pretty neat themes came up there, and I guess we should respond to that. She did allude to this idea of I wanted to end her life after the Paralympics and having everything ready. And this is a really good reminder that we need to be paying attention to our loved ones, to those people around who we may think are good or okay. But just ask, be watching, connect. And in that moment, just to reach out, that's what she was longing for somebody to just reach out, say hello ask her to do something, go have some fun together. If there's somebody in your life right now that's coming to your mind, maybe reach out, give them a call. Let's go do something. Let's have some fun. You don't know that might save somebody's life. 
There's a lot of people right now who are struggling with depression and it's normal thought. It's a common thought to have thoughts of ending life when you have anxiety and depression. And just that comment, that call, that text, that one time to reach out might save somebody's life. So a great reminder. Thank you for your vulnerability, Michelle. And mm. for all of you to just reach out to the people in life, let them know that they're loved, that they belong, that they are enough. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening and for your support. It's really fun to see your feedback and get personal messages from you guys too. We really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. We do feel supported. We've been really enjoying when people send us texts about what stood out from episodes, what their takeaways were, what their learnings were. And if you do have some people that you think we should interview, if you yourself have a story of overcoming in sport, we'd love to meet with more people, continue to do this journey together. Thank you for being on this journey with us. Yeah. Take care. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.